0: Our second lesson for this Lord's Day comes from the Gospel according to John, and we are in uh, chapter 13, and today we will be reading beginning in verse 21 and reading through verse 38. So again, let me invite you to turn there and follow along as I read from God's holy and inspired word. After he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, I tell you the truth, one of you is going to betray me. His disciples stared at one another at a loss to know which of them he meant. One of them, uh, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. And Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and said, ask him which way. Which one he means? And leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, it is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. And then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, son of Simon. And as soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. What you are about to do, do quickly, Jesus told him. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. Since Judas had charge of the money, some thought Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the feast or to give something to the poor. And as soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out. And it was night. And when he was gone, Jesus said, As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus replied, where I'm going, you cannot come, cannot follow now, but you will follow later. And Peter asked, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And then Jesus answered, Will you really lay down your life for me? I tell you the truth. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And herein ends the reading of God's word to us this day. May all praise and honor and glory be to Him and to Him alone. Amen. Last week, Uh, we noted that our study has brought us to a significant turn in John's story. Jesus has withdrawn from any more contact with the public and is now focused solely on his closest disciples. It is the Passover. And as that cherished meal began, Jesus set an example before them all, washing their feet like a true servant and displaying for them the humility they will also need to practice in their relationships with one another going forward. And as they are processing that, Jesus injects some intrigue. He says to them, I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. And I'm telling you this now. Before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Now there have been allusions over the course of Jesus' ministry that there is a rotten apple somewhere in the bushel, but no one has pressed Jesus to say more about that. But here, Jesus is quoting from Psalm 41, where King David bemoans a moment of betrayal from someone close to him, and the idiom he uses is that of lifting the heel. Now, what does he mean by that? If you remember the birth story of Jacob and Esau, Esau received his name from the fact that uh, as a newborn baby, he was covered in reddish hair. Uh, Esau sounds a bit like the Hebrew word for Harry. Jacob's name, however, stemmed from the fact that as the twins were born, Jacob was grasping his brother Esau's heel as though he was attempting to hold him back so that Jacob could become the firstborn. And the Hebrew word for grasping and the Hebrew name Yachab were akin in sound. So it was fitting in their minds to name him as such. But that story also resulted in Jacob fulfilling this grasping storyline in many ways throughout his life to the point that he was viewed by many to be a deceiver. So when David mentions the betrayal of a friend as one who lifts the heel. It fits perfectly with Jesus' declaration concerning the deceiver amid the disciples. There is one among them who is at this table, eating this bread, living deceitfully among them. But Jesus knows this, for as he says here, I know whom I have chosen. In other words, Jesus wants his faithful disciples to know that he knows that this intrigue is unfolding. None of what is about to take place will take Jesus by surprise. By the same token, after he has said these things, John tells us that Jesus was troubled in his spirit. Now, John has used this word before back in chapter 11 when we indicated that Jesus was visibly upset over what we believe were the paid mourners following after Mary, the sister of Lazarus. And here, a similar visible emotion is presenting itself as Jesus announces to one and all that one of them is a traitor and is about to betray him. Well, such an announcement raises more than a few eyebrows. Disciples begin to look around the room, wondering if the guilty party will show themselves. And when it is not readily apparent who it is, the other gospel writers report that the disciples then began to question one another. And then in Mark and Matthew, they even asked the Lord, Lord, is it me? Is it I? Now, John does not report that, but rather he points to a moment when the apostle Peter signals John, since he is reclining at Jesus' right hand, to find out who it is. And when John leans back against Jesus and inquires, Jesus apparently whispers the answer that it is the one to whom he will offer a morsel dipped in the sauce, the dish that is currently before them. Now given the way in which 13 men would have been reclined around a low U-shaped table, one would have to think that the person Jesus is whispering about would be extremely close, close enough for him to reach perhaps even beside him. Well, if John is reclined to Jesus' right, then it may have been that Judas was to Jesus' left. And if that be the case, it recalls the teaching that Jesus offers in Matthew 25 concerning the final judgment. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and he separates the sheep from the goats, the sheep are positioned at his right hand, a place of blessing, And the goats are positioned at his left, a place of cursedness. Now the action of any host of a dinner, sharing a particularly desirable morsel with another guest, was a sign of friendship and honor, which typically would have been received in the same manner as it was given. But in the case of Judas, his heart has been growing steadily harder under the ministry of Christ. He's not been receiving what Jesus has been offering, and as the days have gone along, Judas has been rejecting the message more and more until this moment when Jesus extends a final act of love and friendship towards him, and Judas receives the morsel, but not the love or friendship with which it is offered, as D.A. Carson reflects. And in John's mind, this is the moment when Judas fully succumbs to the tempter and he is possessed by Satan and becomes the devil's surrogate in this diabolical plan to kill the Messiah. Well, in Jesus' mind, the timetable is counting down the hours until Calvary and he hurries Judas along by saying to him, what you're going to do, do quickly. Well, such an encouraging imperative was eagerly received and immediately obeyed. And this commanded Judas was heard by the others, but this errand that Jesus sends Judas out to do must break the solemn mood surrounding an announcement concerning a betrayer. We are told that the disciples surmised that as their treasurer, Jesus was sending Judas out to sc- secure all that was necessary presumably for the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which followed Passover, or perhaps to give alms to the poor. And so once Judas has been dismissed, they do not appear to give it much further thought, nor the issue of there being a traitor in their midst. John, however, presumably aware that Judas was the traitor, offers this observation as Judas departs from them. And it was night. Throughout his gospel, John has been using the metaphor of light and dark, day and night, to communicate the stark difference between following Christ or not. Jesus' declaration, I am the light of the world, is not hyperbole in John's mind. It is a spiritual truth. To go without Christ is to walk in the darkness. And as Judas leaves the others, he is off to join with those who are also walking in the darkness. And John does not miss the opportunity to point out to his readers that a spiritual darkness has fallen upon this drama. Upon Judas's departure, Jesus declares, Now is the Son of Man glorified and God is glorified in him consider just for a moment what has been said before now about jesus hour because it's been spoken of since chapter 2 when he first said to his mother mary that his hour had not yet come or think of the multiple times when jesus evaded the grasp of the authorities because his hour had not yet come but then we came to chapter 12, and the Greeks inquire of him. They want a meeting with him. And then we hear Jesus declare, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. This signaled an important moment in Jesus' internal timetable and, and clock that resulted in Jesus then turning away from the masses and focusing on the twelve. But here, now, as soon as Judas departs, that apparently signals another important moment. And we begin to sense that the singular moment of importance is fast approaching, that we have gone from hours to mere minutes because Jesus announces that he is but a short time away from being glorified, as well as God being glorified in him. Now, it is difficult for us to fully grasp the glory that God sees in the cross because we're accustomed to accolades and rewards and notoriety and all the rest being associated with glory. But God sees in the cross that humiliating moment when the curse that God warned Adam about, a curse that fell upon all of creation when Adam sinned, God's own curse is reversed. It's the moment when a divine decree of righteous judgment is superseded by a divine decree of gracious pardon that is neither unjust nor contradictory, but it perfectly preserves both. In the cross, God the Son engages in this divine rescue plan for his bride, the church, which is the most beautiful display of divine love. And at the same time, God the Father exacts a holy and righteous judgment upon the sin of mankind in a way that does not eternally curse and condemn us, nor does it violate God's perfectly just nature. God the Son absorbs all the wrath of God the Father poured out upon Him because of our sin, thus satisfying the full measure of the curse. And in this moment, God the Son puts on display the boundless nature of His love for those who belong to Him. And God the Father does not violate His perfect holiness by overlooking our sin and pretending as though it is not there. And so I say again, the cross is the moment when a divine decree of righteous judgment is superseded by a divine decree of gracious pardon that is neither unjust nor contradictory, but perfectly preserves them both. And when we understand this, all we can do is declare before the Father and the Son, glory, glory, glory. This moment of glorification is soon to be upon the the disciples, and it will result in the Son of Man leaving them to go to a place where they are prevented from following. They will seek him, but it will be impossible for them to join him. And so Jesus has some things that they need to hear that will prepare them for the time that lies ahead. And with that, Jesus gives to them a new commandment, love one another just as I have loved you. So of all the things that Jesus will soon say to them, this commandment occupies the primary place. Demonstrate love to one another in the same way that I have demonstrated love to you. Now this is not a brotherly love, phileo. It is certainly not an amorous love, eros. This is a godly love, agape. This is a pure love, a holy love that is not motivated by what it will receive in return, but a love that is willing to sacrifice itself for the sake of the other. Jesus has set one example for them already, washing their feet, but is on the brink of illustrating this even more clearly on the cross. And it is this type of love that will hold a body of believers together as they serve the Lord and one another out of love for each other. But more than that, such a love on display will serve as an announcement to the world that we are disciples of Christ. How often are you with someone that you don't really know and after a while you begin to sense that they may be a Christian simply based upon the way they interact with you and with others, by the way they speak, by the way they conduct themselves? As you observe them, you sense that their motivations are genuine and transparent and that they are not putting on airs but are seeking the best in and for others. And the difference that you see in them is so stark when compared to people of the world that you finally inquire and discover that this is a sister or a brother in the Lord and that enriches your fellowship all the more. Jesus is commanding his disciples to put on this kind of love and wear it as a mantle that governs their lives, their words, their actions, their interactions, until it becomes patently obvious to complete strangers that they are an entirely different breed of human being. So does that kind of love govern you and me? Does it govern us as a body of believers here? To give us a sense of how well the first disciples heard this command and allowed it to seep deep into their hearts and minds, contemplating the implications of what this will mean for them, Peter speaks up and wants to know where Jesus is going and why he cannot follow. And how typical is that of us? Someone has said, I don't worry about the parts of the Bible that I do not understand. It's the parts of the Bible that I do understand that worry me. Oh, that the church would be governed by a godly love that is offered to one another to such a sacrificial degree, that the needs of fellow believers would be immediately recognized and addressed, that a genuine fellowship would be fostered, that a communal heart for the lost sheep of Christ's flock would be developed, that the good news of Christ's love in the cross would be our standard broadcast for all to hear. For such a church as this to exist, it would require that our individual attention And our individual focus would primarily be upon Christ and his bride and not upon the world and what exists outside. One of the great problems that disciples face is our growing entanglement with the world. Now, no one is denying that we are constrained to live and work and interact with the world. But we need to realize that the depth of our involvement in the world is largely up to us. How much time do we spend engaged in activities that have no eternal benefit? And how do those things rob us of being in service to Christ and to one another? So when a call goes out for a service opportunity volunteer and we look at our calendars and discover it's full, what do we give our priority to? Or how often do the regular activities of the body of Christ get canceled because a worldly opportunity arises? We tend to forget that the world does not love Christ, nor does it love Christ's disciples, nor will the world ever come to a point of loving us. The world will not sacrifice itself for us. The world will not care about our needs. The world prefers that we remain quiet and the world would be exceedingly happy if we just went away. And in many places around the globe, the body of Christ is enduring intense persecution from the world. And if you are paying attention, you can see that same sentiment growing here in America as the same spirit that invaded Judas continues to demand that the church celebrate the world's depravity or face the consequences. Two nights ago, a business just up the street from us kicked off the Independence Day weekend with a drag queen beauty pageant that they advertised as being family friendly. Now I realize that the world does not know better But as Christians, we have a choice as to whether our time is spent in that worldly environment or in this fellowship. It is no wonder that the writer to the Hebrews, living amid a culture not dissimilar from ours, wrote to his readers, Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day, meaning the day of Christ's return, drawing near. And beloved, these are the implications of living obediently to Christ's command to love one another in the same way that He has loved us. Peter does not immediately hear this or focus on this he stopped listening as soon as he heard Jesus say that he was going somewhere beyond their ability to reach. And Peter wanted to know why. And Jesus responded, Peter, you can't come now. You will later. But that did not satisfy his curiosity, and he foolishly declared that he was resolved to go wherever Jesus was going, even if it meant laying down his life for him. And then Jesus destroys Peter's pride by prophesying that Peter will crumble at the first sign of opposition, not once, not twice, but three times. And do you know when that first opposition came? It came from a little servant girl who asked him if he was one of Jesus' disciples, and Peter collapsed like a card table made from bad papier-mâché, It will only be through the indwelling Spirit of God and the fellowship of the saints that Peter will grow spiritually to such a degree that the day will eventually come when he will be led to a cross of his own and there he will be suspended upside down and indeed give his life for his Lord rather than deny that he ever knew him. What will it take for you and I to rise to that level of Christian maturity and spiritual resolve, that we will gladly perish rather than deny our Savior and our Lord. I submit to you that it will require the indwelling of the Spirit of God as well as our devotion to the teaching of the apostles, to the fellowship of the saints, to the communal gathering around the table of the Lord, and to our praying together. So let us love one another just as he has loved us. Let me invite you to bow your heads with me that we might pray together.